You're listening to audio from Christ Covenant Buckhead. If you're interested in learning more, visit ChristCovenantBuckhead.org. Amen. Y'all may be seated. And uh, as we bring the lights up, I just invite you to open your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 16. We continue uh, in our study of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 16. We're going to look at just uh, one passage, verse 18, Proverbs 16.18 is our uh, scripture reading for the day, and um, uh, we read these words as they come to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, and coming that way, they come with authority, the same kind of authorities of Jesus himself were speaking to us. And so um, as I read these words, let's hear together the word of Christ. Proverbs 16.18, pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've been with us over the past uh, three weeks, we have been in a a series on manhood. In this series, we've been looking particularly at just a few proverbs, um, really just a verse at a time. Uh, these, of course, Proverbs, they apply to all of us, but we're, we're applying them. We're trying to apply them particularly to men, to the men in our midst, because I think these are things that are particularly challenging for men and particularly important for men. And so this week, as we look at Proverbs 16, 18, a, a simple proverb, a famous proverb, uh, I want to consider just three things with you. First of all, pride, uh, then destruction, And then lastly, humility and healing. Pride, destruction, and then humility and healing. You know, know, pride is kind of a hard word to understand what it means. Um, It's an interesting word. Uh, We we use it to mean a a lot of different things, and and I'll talk about that. And then, of course, the the antithesis of pride, the opposite of pride, is humility, which is also uh, a difficult, not only word to understand, but but it's a difficult trait to understand. Exactly what is humility? What, What does that idea mean? And, and so hopefully these, these ideas will, will come in a little clearer as we talk about these things today. So, so what is pride? Well, there's one sense that we use the word pride in a positive sense, right? We'll say something like, I'm proud uh, to be an American, you know, or we'll say, you know, I'm proud of you for that. I mean, I say that to my children all the time. I'm so proud of them. Or, you know, we'll have, uh, we'll take pride in our work. Um, and so what, what does that, that mean? I mean, how, how do we understand pride in that sense, in that, in that positive sense? One other puts it this way that I thought was really helpful when talking about this good sense of the word pride. Pride is faith in the idea that God had when he made us. Pride is faith in the idea that God had when he made us. So when I say, for example, to John Kellis, my son, son, I'm proud of you, uh, I, I'm saying, John Kellis, you're, you're living up to God's design for you. You're, you're, you're following the idea that God ha- had when he made you, or when we say take pride in your work, we're recognizing that God has commanded us to work, commanded us to fill the earth, and he's given us gifts, and he's given us talent, and he's given us energy. And so we're to use that in accordance with God's design, uh, and you should be proud. You should follow God's design. You should, you should have faith in the idea that God had when he made us. So again, there's a, 
there's a sense of this word pride that's a good sense, that, that we're recognizing God's design. We're having faith in God's good design. But where pride becomes bad, where pride becomes destructive, is where we impose our design over against something that God has designed, where, where we try to take charge, where we try to take the reins of design. Lewis Smedes, a Christian author, puts it like this, and I think this is really helpful. Let me kind of read this slowly so you can, you can get it. Pride, in the spiritual sense, is a refusal to let God be God. It's to grab God's status for your own self. It's turning down, this is very important, it's turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his garden and wishing instead to be the creator, independent, reliant on your own resources. And that is the greatest delusion, the delusional fantasy of all fantasies, the cosmic put-on. So rather than trusting and enjoying God's design, pride is this desire to take control. And of course, it's the first great sin. Why did Adam and Eve disobey God's command? You know why? The serpent came to them and said, if you eat this fruit, you will be what? Like God. You'll be independent. You'll be in the driver's seat. You'll be the one that's conducting the music. And so they fell out of God's design. They didn't join in with God's dance in his garden. They desired to take the reins. And of course, when they did, they couldn't handle the reins. They couldn't handle the weight of the reins. They couldn't handle this kind of control. You know, you could say it this way. They couldn't design the universe because they didn't design the universe. They couldn't be like God because they weren't like God. The the weight of that kind of control, the weight of that kind of independence, they could not handle and no one could handle. That's why Smead says that pride is, it's the fantasy of fantasies. It's the greatest of all delusions. It's stealing away something that could never be ours. And this is why pride leads to destruction. You can't handle the weight of the reins, and also you reject the good design. To, to use Smead's word again, you reject the dance, the true dance, the dance that you were designed for. And this kind of thinking has gone throughout church history. One of the things that we don't talk a lot about in kind of the 21st century church is the idea of Trinity, the idea of, of the different persons of the Godhead. J.I. Packer says that we're functionally Unitarian, which means that the fact that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead doesn't mean a lot to a lot of evangelical Christians uh, in these days. We, we don't spend a lot of time thinking, how do the members of the Trinity relate to one another? How, 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 what are their distinct qualities within uh, what's been called the inner life of the Trinity? How do the Father, Son, Holy Spirit relate to one another? But this is something that throughout church history, Christians have thought a lot about. So let's, let's be a part here at Christ's Covenant of renewing this idea of thinking about the members of the Godhead and how they relate together. But the Puritans thought a lot about this, the inner life of the Trinity, how the, how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are and how they relate to one another. And the church fathers in particular, the, the people in the first few hundred years of the church, thought a, a lot about this. There was a, a guy named Gregory of Nazianzus uh, that, that used this word 
perichoresis. Perichoresis, you can hear the word choreography in it, right? Perichoresis. And, and, and what he meant by that word, he was talking about how the members of the Trinity function uh, with one another. There's a movement. There's a design. It's choreography, right? It's, it's a design about uh, their rhythm and their relationship where those three, they're becoming one. They're flowing together as one. This is C.S. Lewis picks up on this idea and, and, and he called the members of the Trinity the great dance. You ever see people dancing? And when they dance, they, they, they seem, even though there's two distinct people, if they're good dancers, right? This is not me dancing, right? But if they're good dancers, you see two people that really know how to dance with one another, it's, it's one motion. It's one fluid motion. There's a choreography about it. There's a design about it. There's a unity. Even though there's a distinction in the members that are dancing, there's a unity about what they're doing Together, this is what Gregory of Nazianzus was talking about. This is perichoresis. This is, this, this is how the members of the Trinity are functioning together. There's this great dance about it. And, and if you think about this from the beginning of time, from before time, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, those three in union, in rhythm with one another, if you will, dancing and choreography with one another, this, this union of movement, this rhythm of movement that, that overflows, that only overflows into creation. That's what creation is. It's a spilling over of this dance. It's an inviting in of this dance. And, and everything that God made, the trees, the sky, the stars, you know, the, the merchant, the farmer, uh, the, 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 the person at sea, it's all a part of this rhythm that's supposed to go together and, and just echo out. Just the dance gets larger and larger and larger, echoing God's grand design, echoing his beauty. I, uh, I know this has been a long time ago, but did, did anybody, does anybody remember watching, and I know a lot of you guys were pretty young at this time, but do you remember watching the opening ceremony of the 2008 Beijing Olympics, right? I, I, there's, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that in my life. You know, first of all, just the choreography of the moment was amazing. It, it happened on August 8th, the 8th month, on the 8th, 2008, at 8 p.m. So that's pretty neat. Uh, but then the whole thing was like that. I mean, at times they had 15,000, or I don't think at time, I don't think there's 15,000 performers at once, but there's 15,000 total performers. And if you watched it, I mean, just thousands of performers, all in sync, all in unity, this just great dance going on, and everything was incredibly precise and incredibly beautiful. And, and I think there's, a, there's an order, there's a rhythm about that, that. In order to do that, you have to all be dancing to the same song. And, and in a sense, I think this is a great analogy to what God's design of uh, was creation. But pride is, is removing yourself from the song. See, pride is dancing to a different song. Pride is saying, I don't like this song. <laughs> this isn't the song that I was designed to, to, to dance. And, and, and of course, that's not true. God in his, in his sovereignty and in his beauty has designed you to dance in a beautiful way. There, there is a design about you, a particular design about you that, that's most rightly fulfilled when you find yourself in this music. But pride is a reordering of that. Pride is, a, is, is rejecting that order. It's trying to reorder the world. And this is why the text said pride leads to destruction. Pride comes before destruction. It destroys everything. It destroys the dance. It destroys the music. It, it, it destroys the rhythm of the moment. And so I, I, let's move on. We've, we've talked a little bit about pride. There's probably a lot more we could say there. But the second thing I do want to talk to you about is destruction. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
Now, again, I think this is one of those kind of verses that I think people have had an overly simplified understanding of. What does this mean, that pride goes before destruction, or that pride goes before a fall, all right? Right, pride goes before the fall. You hear this all the time. What, is, what does that really mean? Well, I think a lot of us, uh, you, you remember, again, to kind of go back in time, some of y'all remember Super Bowl 27. It was the third uh, year that the Bills would lose the Super Bowl in a row. Jim Kelly could never win it. They're playing the Cowboys, and toward the end of the game, uh, Jim Kelly gets sacked. He fumbles the ball. Leon Lett, some of y'all remember Leon Lett, scoops it up. Leon Lett was actually recruited to play at Auburn, but he didn't make the grades, but could have been a Tiger. But anyway, Leon Lett picks up the ball, starts running down the field. He's a defensive lineman. This is the Super Bowl. He could have scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl as a defensive lineman, an incredibly rare thing to do. If he would have scored this touchdown, uh, it would have been the, the highest point total ever scored in a Super Bowl. The uh, Cowboys would have held that record. But Don Beebe, old Don Beebe, hustled on, chased him down. And right as he was crossing the goal line, Leon Letts started kind of doing this goal line dance. He slowed up. He held the ball out. And, of course, Beebe batted the ball away. It was a touchback. The Cowboys didn't score that final touchdown. It didn't matter. They won big anyway. But, uh, man, this has been known as the most embarrassing play <laughs> In NFL history, this guy could have had a touchdown in the Super Bowl because he was haughty. He fumbled. He lost this opportunity. So I think a lot of us, oh, I know what pride goes before destruction or a haughty spirit. I know what that means. That means don't be like Leon Letter. You know, don't be like the tortoise and the hare, right? Don't be like the hare. Don't be haughty in these kinds of ways. But I think, I believe, and this is what I'm going to talk with you about today, I think that the author of Proverbs actually has something a little deeper in mind than Leon Lett here. And so let's think about this verse. Pride goes before destruction. What does pride destroy? And just a few things. First of all, pride in a very deep sense destroys the self. It destroys yourself. Your own pride will destroy yourself, your soul. Dorothy Sayers says that sin is a deep interior dislocation of the soul. C.S. Lewis says that pride is the fountainhead. It's the source of all sin. So in a very real sense, pride is this deep dislocation of the soul. It tears you out of God's design, right? It tears you away from the dance, as we have been talking about it. It rips us away from our foundation. It rips us, it rips our soul away, and it leaves us naked. This is why when Adam and Eve first sinned, they were naked it wasn't that they were naked for the first time. They'd always been naked, but for the first time they knew they were naked. They didn't have a security. They didn't have a foundation. They felt a fearful vulnerability for the first time in their lives. And because they knew that they were naked, their inclination was to cover themselves. To cover themselves that they, with something that they thought would be commendable. To cover themselves that they thought would hide their vulnerability. To hide who they really were. They had this inclination. They had to cover themselves. And it's the same inclination that all of us who are ripping ourselves away from God's design have. We cover ourselves. We put stuff out there. You know, I have a conf confession to make. Um, and I don't know that I've ever really shared this before. But when I was a kid... I played baseball because, you know, I was a boy in Alabama, and that's just what you did. But I'll, I'll be honest, I never really liked baseball that much. And I know that might be offensive to some of you, and I mean no offense. I love going to a baseball game. I love hot dogs. 
But I just, I just never really loved playing baseball. I just never really got into it. I hear people talk about it. You know, I hear people talk about it. They talk about the, 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 the beauty of it and the rhythm of it and the fact that the bases are this far apart and it makes so much sense to people. It just, I, I respect that. But it just, it never sang to my soul. But I, I played. I played. For, and I played baseball forever. I played from the time I was like four years old, you know, to high school. I, I kept playing baseball. And I remember when I was in fourth grade... I was in a play. Uh, my teacher was big into drama, and I was in a play with him. Uh, he invited some people in the class to be in this play, and I loved it. It was great. I had so much fun with it. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I loved, like, the theater of it and the drama of it. But the next year, next year rolled around, and I had to choose if I would play baseball or be in the play. And keep in mind, I never really liked baseball. But I chose baseball. And then the next year, I chose baseball again, and I chose baseball again, and I chose baseball again. And why did I, I think back, why did I do that? And you know why I did that? Pride. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to put something out there that I thought everybody would be impressed by. You know, my buddies thought that baseball was cooler than the play. I thought girls would think baseball was cooler than the play. And so I kind of started putting on this, this show that wasn't really true to even what I really liked. It wasn't true to what was really in my heart. And look, as a kid, that's probably okay to do. And I had, I had fun with my buddies playing baseball, and I learned a few good things. You know, I learned how to, like, dig it out and get to first base, even if you're going to be thrown out or whatever you learn. But, uh, but I, I, I tell you that story because, you know, we learn that as children. We learn how to cover ourselves with things that we think will be impressive, with things that we think will make us feel better than the next guy, superior to the next guy. You need to pay attention to me because I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And, and this, when, when, when that kind of desire, that, that outward-facing proud desire steals you away from who you really are, from who you're really designed to be, that's violent. <laughs> that's a dislocation of the soul. It'll destroy your inward self. It'll destroy any sense of poise that you have or any sense of balance that you have. Pride goes before destruction of the self. This leads to fear. It leads to anxiety. It leads to a lack of balance, a lack of peace. You, you end up learning these things. Men, I just want to tell you this. You end up learning these things as little boys, and you can, you can put on these shows for the rest of your life. That's what pride does. It goes before the destruction of your soul. But it also goes before the destruction of community. You know, in ancient times, uh, there was a lot of talk about the righteous and the unrighteous, and it was the righteous who would sacrifice himself for the sake of the community. That's, that's how you would be known as a righteous man. You'd sacrifice yourself for the sake of the community, but the unrighteous would sacrifice the community for the sake of self. But sacrifice all the people around it for the sake of self. And this is what pride does. Pride destroys community. You know, C.S. Lewis, again, talks a lot about this. He says, pride only works in comparison. So, you know, it's not accumulation that really matters to a man. It's more accumulation, right? It's, it's having more than the next guy. It's the, the proud man wants more. He, he wants to be wealthier. He wants to be smarter. He wants to be better. I'm not here to serve the community. 
I'm not here to humble myself underneath the community. No, I need to be above the community. The community is here to serve me. And again, pride is not finding yourself in the dance. Pride is saying that the dance is about me. I'm at the center of the dance. Everyone else needs to conform their dance to my dance. And this is why pride destroys community. Pride leads to jealousy. Pride leads to anger. Pride leads to rivalries and selfishness. I mentioned earlier about the good side of pride, you know, saying to John Kellis, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for following God's design for your life. But that can very easily come, no, John Kellis, you need to follow my design for your life. I'll only be proud of you if you conform to my music. Men, watch out for this. Pride can masquerade itself as good parenting. Pride can masquerade itself as being a shrewd boss. Pride is so subtle, but it destroys community. Rather than having a posture of pursuit, having a posture of pursuing others and the good in others, pride says, no, others should be pursuing me. Others should be coming after me. I'm the important one. You know, the first post-fall story in the Bible, right? Sin has entered the world. You know the very next story? Two brothers bring an offering before God. And God receives one with more joy. He loves one more than the other. And so Cain, at seeing this, at seeing God being pleased with Abel, rather than being happy for Abel, rather than celebrating Abel, rather than being a good brother and finding his place in the dance and continuing to work hard, you know, God even says to Cain, look, Cain, if you do well, you'll be accepted. You know, you know just, just, just keep doing well. Just keep your head down. Just keep working hard. I love you too. I'll accept you too. But Cain can't stand it. And what does Cain do? He destroys Abel. He destroys community. Pride always destroys community. Pride ultimately leads you to only be thinking about yourself, your position, what will make you happy. And rather than being focused on what you have been given, pride only leads you to be upset about what you haven't been given. Pride destroys the self, it destroys community, but it also destroys, it destroys God or our faith in God, our sense of God. Ultimately, pride will destroy our ability to worship, our ability to be in awe of the creator of the universe. We'll, we'll totally reject the music maker. And C.S. Lewis says that pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride makes people want to get rid of God. Pride has no room for God. Pride fails to see God for who he really is. And rather than realizing that God has given us so much, pride begins to say, no, all of this is mine. I created all of this. I made all of this. I am entitled to all of this. You know, I was thinking about this even in, in terms of generosity this week. You know, if, if someone gave you a $100,000 loan, and they said, hey, look, I only need you to pay back $10,000 of the loan, and you can just have the rest. That's a, pretty, that's a bad bank, but a pretty good deal. You know, usually when you get a loan from somebody, they make you, you want $110,000 back, right? They want more. They want interest back. But, but God says, no, look, you can have everything. I just want you to remember me. I just want you to sacrifice for me. I want you to give me a little time for worship. I want you to give me a little of your finances for, for ministry. And, and what does pride say? Pride says, no. You can't have any of this. It's mine. I worked for this. It's a complete anti-God state of mind. It's a complete failure to recognize the goodness of God. See, Pride rejects God. It destroys any notion of God. 
Most religion goes to God and says, and tries to make a deal. It says, look, I'll get baptized if I have to. I'll go to church if I have to. I'll give a little bit if I have to. But you better bless me. There's other gods that I can serve out there that always pay up on time. So you better do the same. I can serve the God of leisure. I can serve the God of wealth. I can serve the God of business. So I'll keep serving you, but you better be as obedient as those gods are to me. And listen, a lot of folks and men, particularly a lot of men in Atlanta, this is their notion of God. You are not in awe of him. You you haven't bowed the knee of humility before him. He's just another tool in your bag. You're just using him. That's pride. And and ultimately, I want you to to hear this. That's a dishonest pride. It's a hypocritical pride. You want to confess God to get a deal from God, but, but you don't really believe in God. And what dishonest pride, what this kind of hypocritical pride always will eventually lead to is a rejection of God altogether. When it gets honest with itself, it rejects God altogether. This is Tolstoy. This is Freud. This is Aldous Huxley. All of these troubled men who said, if God can't give me what I want, then he must not exist. And of course, in all their cases, it only led to further and further depression. Pride destroys the self. Pride destroys community. Pride ultimately destroys any notion of God. Pride goes before destruction. So we've talked about pride, we've talked about destruction, but, but finally I, I want to talk about humility and healing. And here's what I know. Here's what I know about everybody here. I want you to listen to this. Not only everybody here, but everybody everywhere. One day, everyone will be cured of their pride. You know that? One day, everyone, everywhere, will be healed of their pride. And it's because one day, everyone will have an encounter with the living God. They'll see him face to face, and they will be be humbled by him. One day, all pride will be destroyed. Your pride and my pride will all be destroyed one day. And it'll either be destroyed by God's justice or it will be destroyed by God's grace. One day all pride will be destroyed. It will either be destroyed by God's justice, or it will be destroyed by God's grace. You know, the great thing about the new heavens, new earth, the great thing about this ultimate hope that we have as Christians is that everything will be restored. And what that means is, to use our analogy we've been using, is is everybody will will be restored to dancing to the, the same music. All of the other songs, all of the other counterfeit songs, all of the other competing songs that people are dancing to outside of God's great rhythm, they'll all be destroyed. They'll all be destroyed, and, and everyone once again will be in rhythm with what is right, with what is good, with everything will, everything that is out of order will be set back into order. But in order for that to happen, God must destroy all of the other songs. You see, pride is ultimately not seeing God rightly, but one day we all will see God rightly. We will all stand before him, and you will either stand before him naked in your sin or clothed in his grace. One day we'll all be set right. We'll all, we'll all be cured of our pride. But it will either be by God's justice or by God's grace. There's, there's an interesting Bible story in Luke 16 about a rich man and Lazarus. And uh, it's a story, what's interesting about the story is that commentators are divided on whether or not it was a parable. 
a lot of commentators think it was a parable. A lot of commentators don't think it was a parable. It doesn't have some of the, 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 the same kind of features that a lot of the parables of Jesus have. Some people think Jesus was just actually telling a story that, that he had insight to. He had insight into kind of the other side of these things about this rich man and this guy named Lazarus. But either way, it doesn't really matter if it was a parable or not. The, the, the point of the story is very clear. There was a rich man who was proud, who was high, he was of noble birth, the text says. And then there was a poor man, a humble man, a man who was low. And of course they both die in the story and the humble man receives grace. God gives grace to the humble, but not the rich man. It says that he's separated from God, he's in torment, he's in Hades. And what's interesting about this is the man cries out to Abraham in the story and he, he says, have mercy on me. And Abraham, of course, speaks back to the rich man and he says, and when he, when he replies to him, I think this is so interesting, he replies with the words, my child, my child. It implies that, that the man of noble birth, in his condition, being separated from God, being in Hades, the man of noble birth has become humbled, but it's too late in this story. In fact, as the text says, it says, well, Abraham says to him, there's a great chasm now. There's a chasm that is fixed between me and you. You're where you are. You've been humbled by God's justice. Lazarus has been humbled by God's grace. There's a day that is coming when God will reestablish his order. And he will bring everything into order with himself. And he's either going to do it through justice or through Grace, and if you remember the story, the rich man says, well, please send Lazarus back to warn my brothers. And Abraham's response is this. You remember Abraham's response? He says to the rich man, they have Moses. They have the prophets. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, well, they're not going to believe even if someone were to rise from the dead. And come and speak to them. What's so interesting about that story, as we look at it on this side, is, you know, we have Moses, and we have the prophets, but more than that, somebody has risen from the dead and come to, to come to speak to us. It's as if Lazarus has actually come, and his name is Jesus, and he's more than just uh, the poor man. He's the son of God who's, who's come to warn us, but also to restore us. But more than that, Jesus has come to save us. You see, Jesus doesn't just come to warn us and to restore us and to heal us and to lead us back into truth. No, Jesus actually comes to save us. Jesus actually comes to bear the justice of God. This is how God clothes us in grace. This is how we're restored in grace. Don't you see, Jesus faced the justice that we deserved. Jesus was separated by the chasm that could not be crossed. Jesus was forsaken Jesus was crushed. Jesus faced the justice so that we could be restored, so that we could be healed. And he does more than that. He, he doesn't just come to warn us. He doesn't just come to save us. He comes to actually heal us. This is the hope of the Christian life. That, that if you believe in this grace, if you're covered by this grace, Jesus sends his indwelling Holy Spirit, this third member of the Trinity, to be in our lives and to restore us, to teach us once again the dance, to teach us once again the rhythm. I was talking to somebody this week about this. He says, how do we know God's design? This is how you know. 
You look to Christ, and as you look to Christ, he sends his spirit who leads us in all truth, who leads us in the way of Christ, who reminds us of the character of Christ. He leads us into humility. He doesn't jolt us into humility. He leads us into humility. He restores us. He helps us to rightly see him. You know, I used to be so confused as to what humility was. You know, people would say, well, be humble. I was like, well, what is, what is humility? What is, is humility being quiet? You know, like, what is to mean to be humble? Is that to be quiet? Is it to always talk negatively about yourself? To be like, oh, I'm so horrible. I'm so, is that humility, right? I, I, what is humility? It's a hard thing to, to understand. You know, and, and ultimately, you know, true humility is being who God really designed you to be. It's joyfully finding your place in the dance. It's joyfully dancing to the music that God has set out for you. And, and the only thing that, that rightly sets our heart to this, as I said last week, the thing that both humbles us and builds us at the same time, that humbles us, that helps us rightly see ourselves before God, and that builds us up to, to run after God, the only thing that can do this is the gospel. When you're confronted with, at the same time, the holiness of God and the love of God, the holiness of God that, that breaks you down, that helps you to actually see, you confront with who you actually are, but the love of God that, that pursues us despite our running, despite our rejection of God's song. This will humble you, this will build you. And so the question today is, as we close, is, is have you encountered this? Have you actually come eye to eye with the living God? Have you seen his holiness and have you seen his love? And that's one of the reasons that this is so important. You need to be here hearing the word of God. This is, this is the means by which the spirit moves, the means by which the kingdom goes forward. This is why a community is so important. It's, it's, it's hard, to, be, it's hard to, to find yourself in this fantasy of fantasies if you're actually around people that you're vulnerable with, that, that know you, that know your heart. People are very good at pointing out pride in your heart. They're very good at helping you see who you actually are. That's why community is so important. It's why service is so important. You know why service is so important? is because you're reminding yourself that it's not all about me. I'm giving myself to something. That's one of the reasons we push service here. We're giving ourselves to the community. We're finding our place in the community. The community is not here to just exist for us and for our good and to, to meet our little needs. No, we're, 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 we're finding our place in the community. We're serving the community. It's a reminder of humility. It's why generosity is so important. And, and my hope in all of this is that you're seeing Jesus. You're seeing his character. You're seeing who he is. And that he's tuning your heart to know him. There's you know, this old song that we sing, Come Thou Fount. And I love one of the lines in it. It says, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Tune my heart to know your grace. Tune my heart, if you will, to be humbled by your grace, to be corrected by grace. I want to be corrected by grace, not justice. I want to be tuned to God's grace by the gospel Tune my heart to sing your grace. You know, every tune a guitar, you know, I know how to tune a guitar. You know, what you do is you, you, in order to tune a guitar, you've got to hear the note that you're trying to tune the string to. And when you hear that note where it's off, you make an adjustment. You, you hear where the note's off, and you turn 
the tuning crank and you, you make an adjustment. You get it in line with the sound that you're hearing. And I just want to say this to you. Your, all of your hearts every day, every week are being tuned. They're being tuned towards something. They're being tuned towards something. They're being tuned towards some song, towards some sound. And most of the time, outside of here, they're being tuned to a very self-fulfilling, very pride-oriented, very harsh song. And that's why we, we so need discipline. That's why we so need worship. That's why we so need community, so that God, in all of this, is tuning our hearts to sing His grace. And you know, when you tune something, where, when it's wrong, you... You hear that it's wrong, and then you make an adjustment. And in the same way, to tune your heart, you, you need both repentance, realizing my heart doesn't sound like this, and faith, tuning your heart to sound like that, to be in line with that. This is how Jesus leads us back into humility, how he restores us, and ultimately, how he heals us. Have you encountered him? Are you seeing him? Are you hearing him? Are you hearing this dance that you were built for, that you were designed for? Are you tuning your heart toward it? And as we think about that, let's pray. Father, I pray that uh, these insights today would, would sink in, would tune us, that um, we'd be confronted by you and experience repentance, that we'd be confronted by you and experience faith, that you would tune us, Lord, that you would set us right, that you would set us back, Father. Cure our proud hearts by your grace. Cure our proud hearts by the grace of Jesus, Lord. Tune us, Father. Uh, away from a self-centered, self-serving desire and toward you and toward your right design, Lord. I pray that we would not reject and so be in delusion of, of who you've made us to be. Heal our hearts today, Lord. Heal our minds. Help us to see you rightly. We need And so, Father, I pray these things in um, the good and strong name of Jesus. Amen.